Welcome to Driven Minds. I'm Gillian, and this is a Type 7 podcast. Our guest today is Sarah Kubrick. She is an existential therapist and writer who is best known as her Instagram handle, at millennial.therapist. She's garnered a cult following for her remarkable tips and insights that help us make our way through the human experience and encourage self-reflection as we go. So I've been following Sarah for a while now and have been relentlessly and aggressively commenting on her posts. So she had no choice but to kind of build up one of those Instagram friendships with me. We've never spoken IRL, which is why I flew to London to end this remote romance and meet her in the flesh. Plus, I am a fervent existentialist at heart, also studied it in college. So that is why I was so excited to get into this all with her. And as you're about to hear, I ended up divulging way too much because we spoke for an hour and she was a therapist and I treated her as such. There go the boundaries. Anyway, here it is, my conversation with Sarah Kubrick, aka The Millennial Therapist. Neither of us are from London or live in London. Correct. Yet we are sitting here in London recording this podcast. Mm. I personally think this is my theory of how this happened is that I so obsessively, borderline psychotically commented on your Instagram post for the last nine months that you kind of, I wore you down. And eventually, you did not. I'm like such a fan. And the funny thing is, I'm so used to you now commenting. (laughs) That when you don't, I'm like, huh, did that post not land? Like, it became like a thing for me where I'm like, huh, Gigi's not on here. Hmm. That I is like, so send you a DM funny. Like, uh, what was wrong with this post? <laughs> I love it. Listen, I wear that badge with the seal of approval because I felt like I just like, I'm like, how do I wear this girl down? And just so you know, guys, if there's one lesson to take away, eventually, if you keep stalking someone, they will listen to you and you will end up sitting with them one-on-one in a room in London, and it will unfold like that. So this is a success story, really. This is a success story. No, your comments are fantastic. I feel like my community loves them, and they're always engaged with them. Like, oh, she said that better than I did. Cool. (laughs) Well, I think also, if I comment on someone's thing and they don't acknowledge it, I also feel like, why aren't they acknowledging this? You know what I mean? I try. You also, like, like most people's, which I also really— I try. Yeah, I try to do the same, but it's also, obviously, sometimes— um, kind of, yeah, and kind of overwhelming. Yeah. How would you describe existential therapy in like one to two sentences? Existential therapy is a specific way of understanding humanity, a specific way of approaching suffering. Um, and it focuses on responsibility, freedom, meaning, death. Um, so it has its kind of staples through which it understands what it means to be human. And why do you think this branch of therapy speaks so closely and resonates with millennials? I have found that we're asking the bigger questions. Mm. We're, we're really like, we're having this mass identity crisis, in my personal opinion, and we're all seeking for something more. And I think sometimes when you're focused on getting the essentials met, you're not thinking about the existential questions as much. And not always, but I think about our parents' generation who were maybe like working nine to five and they were like, we need to get that house. We need Mm -hmm. to, you know, have the dog and the kids. And and they kind of had these goals. And I think as as the world has kind of opened up for us, Mm -hmm. we have more freedom. But with more freedom comes more anxiety. 
a more like more existential question. So it's like you can be anything. That's really cute, nice, but with that comes a lot of responsibility and a lot of anxiety of like, okay, if I can be anything, what will I actually be, and who am I? Um, and so I think that millennials have kind of gravitated without knowing to like these big existential questions because the world has changed. I think that's so well said. I also feel that there is a kind of nihilism mm. in existentialism that actually is so much more freeing than I, is depressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the idea that our days are numbered, we never know when we're going to die, it really puts two things. One is like a necessary pressure. Mm. And the other thing is this kind of like fuck it mentality of like things will work out somehow anyway. Yeah. And Whenever I adopt this lens with which to see things and my problems of like, you know what, this is the way it is. You know, all we have is what is given to us at mm. this moment and kind of like, fuck it, you know, yeah, we're yeah. going to die. I really feel like that resonates with me the most. Yeah. And it was interesting. I worked at Vogue for a while and there was this one editor who gave me the best advice, you know, because obviously every magazine issue is predicated on, you know, what the season styles is, what we should be wearing, what we shouldn't be wearing, like all this this stuff. And she gave me the best advice. She goes, you're going to die anyway. Wear whatever the fuck you want. And I was like, yes, like that is the way to look at things. It's a nihilistic lens, but I actually find it like super freeing. Super freeing. But I find that like the lack of structure, the absurdity of life yeah. is freeing, but he also imposes more responsibility. So I think it's a double-edged sword where I feel more free in terms of like, I get to do with this life what I want to do, but Mm -hmm. that means I'm also responsible um, for the way it turns out. Um, And it's not this false sense of control because you can't control the way your life works out, but you can control kind of your part in it. Yeah. Um, And yeah, I do think there's something freeing about going, life is absurd. Yeah. And I get to play with that Mm -hmm. and be messy with it. Mm-hmm. Instead of having this false understanding of like things are meant to be this way all the time, or like, right, or should be a certain way, should be a certain way, or like things happen for a reason. It's like, hmm, is that reason just because you did that? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, right. is it? And I think a lot of people are shocked when I don't fall into the area of like everything happens for a reason. If things are not meant for you, they will leave your life, and if they are meant for you, they will come into your life. And I'm not so passive about life in terms of like. If something is meant for you, yeah, it will enter your life. But if you're not taking that responsibility to grab it, Mm. it will just pass on by. Totally. It will, most of the time, it doesn't pause there and then, like, force itself into your life. And so I think, like, yeah, things can be, like, things are meant to be, but that also entails, like, being really active and actually seizing those opportunities. Right, right. Like, everyone has agency. Use it. Use it. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about taking responsibility, you talk a lot on Instagram about taking responsibility for communicating our needs Mm -hmm. in a relationship, whether that's platonic or romantic. And as important as this is, because our partners obviously cannot read our minds, in the suburbs of my mind sits the word needy whenever I think about voicing my own needs. And I think a lot of this stems from the rhetoric and the adages we have around We're not ready for someone to come into our life unless we fully worked on ourselves, unless, you know, we're fully prepared to take that person in, when in reality, it's impossible. So I feel like this word needy, which has long been associated with mostly women, Women, to be honest. for sure. Right? Who need or want too much. It's funny to me that this word has been pathologized because if you look up the word needy in the dictionary, the Merriam-Webster dictionary definition is 
having emotional needs. Yeah. And unless you are a sociopath, that is a foundational block to being human. Yep. So why do you think the word needy has been pathologized? I think what differentiates like voicing your need and you being perceived as needy is the way the other person receives it. Mm -hmm. Because Mm. I can go like, I really need more quality time. Mm -hmm. And my partner can go, oh my God, you're being so needy. Or they can go, my partner's trying to share a need with me that can help the intimacy of our relationship. And the way that they interact with your need will make you feel some sort of way about it will make you go, wow, great. I can be open and I just enhance my relationship or like, oh my God, I'm being so needy. And we all have needs and no one can read our mind. Therefore, you need to tell them what your needs are. I think where we get in trouble is when we expect our partner to fulfill the need that we're meant to meet ourselves. Say more. Meaning, I need to be in charge of my own sense of fulfillment, my own Mm. sense of meaning. Mm -hmm. But if I place that on them and I go, I need you to meet this need, that is so not your responsibility. Back to the responsibility piece. Um, I think this is why maybe we started with the neediness because people did feel really overburdened by people's needs. But that's because people were asking them to meet needs that they couldn't actually meet. Right. So it's like, I I need to be happy. Make sure this relationship makes me happy. Whew. And that is a really common one. We might not say it, but that's how we act. We expect our partner to make us happy um, or to be our sole source of happiness. And so I think like when we talk about neediness, if I were ever to use that word, which I never do. Oh, same. I literally believe it belongs in a sack of dicks. Yeah, I I (laughs) fucking hate that word so, so much. Like it's, but I would say there is inappropriate needs in terms of like needs that actually don't belong to anybody else. And then there's needs that you need to voice to make your relationships work. Yeah, I know. I agree, you know? And the other thing is like, I feel like I go so out of my way to make sure I'm not seen as needy. Really? Oh my God, 100%. Again, just because it's been so pathologized and like you don't want to be that needy girlfriend, right? You want to be like self-sufficient and like, I think it also comes down to, you know, hearing what men want, right? Like men want the girl that can do all of these things, can voice her own needs, can... Or at least that's how I feel. You know, they they expect us to be everything and then just not somehow have emotional support without them necessarily giving it to us. Yeah. And then we are the ones that are called needy whenever we ask for something. But I think another word of needy is like another variation of that is high maintenance. Mm. And like, that's what I used to get. Yes, you know, I so get that too. And it was just like, oh, you're being high maintenance. And I would have my girlfriends be like, I cannot believe that this is like what you're asking for. And I remember in my 20s being like, oh my God, am I asking for too much? Being like, I don't think I'm asking for too much. And then I had a girlfriend come to me maybe like a year ago or something and being like, Yeah, so you weren't actually asking for Mm. so much, were you? And everyone thought you were absolutely insane for doing it, but he actually made your relationships function really well. And I I was like, yeah. And I just kind of had to ignore the the stigma around it, kind of the pressure. Because, yeah, it's like, be the perfect girlfriend. Um, Don't ask for too much and give everything that you can. Like, that's like the formula of like the perfect girlfriend is like, okay, you give everything— to them that they need and you need to guess it often because yeah. it's like men don't communicate so it's your job to like yeah. figure out what they want but then don't you dare ask for something and 
I, you know, I kind of embrace the high maintenance where I'm like, well, I'm not going to be in this relationship if I'm not happy. Right. So in order to be happy, I need to tell them. And if they leave, that's okay because I'd rather be single than unhappy in a relationship. Fucking Sam. What's an example of something that they consider to be high maintenance that you qualified as just voicing your needs? Um, my, my partner's checking in. Oh, fucking Sam. And he's Same. like, I don't need you to be like, now I'm on the toilet. And right. like, now I'm with this friend that I've known. For, like, it's not about micromanaging. It's right. about like, I need us to preserve connections. And I've done a lot of long distance in the past. Yeah, Sam. And it's like, if communication is what keeps us afloat. So, yeah. you know, a, a little text. Hi, how 100%. are you? That's what I need. And if I don't get that, I'm very displeased. But I also feel like we don't really have a relationship. <laughs> Yeah. Because, like, we're not connecting in any way. So that was definitely something where people were like, oh, my God, they message you? I'm like, yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm so with you. And what's interesting about that is I've been reading this book called Attached recently. Mm-hmm. Do you know it? I've heard of it. I've never read it. Okay. Yeah. So it is a deep dive into adult attachment, right? Yeah. And what's so interesting is that this book has totally flipped the way I conceive mm-hmm. of dependency and this word neediness, which I'd like to cancel completely on its head. Yeah. Okay. So for instance, I used to get really upset when, to your point about like checking in. Yeah. If a guy didn't check in who I was dating for a while and I, you know, would be waiting and nothing would come and I would get upset. Yeah. But more importantly, I'd be upset that I was upset. <laughs> so it was like the self-perpetuating shame spiral. Yeah. Because I'd be so mad at the at myself that I needed this to begin with when we're told, be a complete human without someone. Without someone, yeah. Right? And then what this book showed me is that it's actually our biological imperative to not only depend on someone, but we are wired to seek security from whoever our other person is. Of course. So we're living... In 2022, with caveman brains, when back in the day, we needed to be one physiological unit in order to survive. Yeah. So all of a sudden, we have all these modern issues, such as long-distance relationships, Mm -hmm. which we never had to deal with at the time. And I've been in so many of them, too. And you need, yeah. (laughs) And you do need, even if it's not physical attachment, which was more caveman times, we can't deal with the idea Mm -hmm. of not having that mental connection. You know what I'm saying? So I feel like we're just living in modern times with caveman brains. And it's hard to fucking adapt. It's super hard to adapt, but I think we can. And I think it's always that struggle between like autonomy and belonging and you need both and you need both to coexist. Mm -hmm. You can't just lean fully into your autonomy, nor does pure autonomy even exist, I don't think. Like when I think about the concept of self, which is something I'm really passionate about, I even write in my book, like you cannot become yourself in isolation. It's not like you go off to a cave, sit there for a year by yourself, and now you're like, I figured myself out because that's not how it works. Totally. You need relationships. The biggest lessons I've ever learned about myself were in relationship to someone else. It's like holding a mirror. It's like holding a mirror. And it doesn't have to be a romantic relationship. It can be family. It can be friends. It really doesn't matter. But I think that we need other people in terms Mm -hmm. of like we're social beings. And this is how we learn about who we are, about the world. However, that does not strip us of our freedom to become autonomous. Mm. And I think it's really difficult for us to come to a place where we feel safe enough to get distance. Mm -hmm. Because it is. Like, it's evolutionary. It's going, 
I will be threatened if I take a bit of distance. What if something comes between us? Mm-hmm. Also, what if you find someone else? That's also you, oh that's something God. that constantly Huge. comes into my mind. Like I'm like, oh, what if you know? What if he meets someone? Yeah. What if you know? But then it's like, well, what if I meet someone? What you if know, you I don't, meet someone? I don't think of my own agency. Also, I also like for me for that. I remember a college guy, like one of my best guy friends, mm-hmm. was like, I don't care if someone cheats on me, and I went like, what? What are you talking about? He's like. Why would I want to be with someone who's suited for someone else? Oh, or, I feel the exact same way. Or like that they don't want to be with me. At that point in my life, I was really jealous. <laughs> I was like, I, I don't understand this. I don't—that right. doesn't resonate. And now right. I'm like, oh my God, yeah. Like, yeah. it's okay. And I think it's being—feeling safe enough within yourself to allow others to show you who they are and to mm-hmm. be who they are. And if at some point—and this now goes into like modern monogamy and all this stuff. But if at some point you are no longer— you no longer align with who they are. You need to be safe enough within yourself to release them. Mm. No, that's so well said. I so identify with your friend because when I moved to Berlin, I was mm. in a relationship with a guy in New York. And when I moved, I said, honestly, you know, I'm not going to be with you every day. I was like flying back monthly, but still, I mean, yeah, that yeah. leaves like, you know, three weeks of him left <laughs> to his own devices. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but I, I really yeah. said to him, I was like, you know what? If you meet someone mm-hmm. and you feel something— don't not do it because of me. Because wow. I swear to God I said that. Because I was like, you know, I, I actually am quite fatalist, to be honest. Like, yeah, I yeah. do believe that, like, I don't think I'm a soulmate with one person. Yeah. But I do believe, like, people come in and out of our lives for a reason. I so, I, you know, I really do. So I really felt, like, if someone comes into your life, mm-hmm. which, by the way, she actually did. Ooh. And then I had to, like— <laughs> Plot twist. Don't do yeah. mega plot twist. And then I had to, like, eat Check my yourself. own advice. Yeah. Well, I to eat my own advice, and it was so heartbreaking. But it's so funny because the moment I saw her, I was like, this person it's is your you. soulmate, literally. Oh. And I didn't have anyone at the time. Like, yeah. I was totally single. So that actually did happen. But I know that that was the right way to go. Yeah. And, you know, as a result, I know I'm supposed to be sitting here right now in this room with you yeah. in London having this conversation, you know. So I feel like there is like a bit of a fatalist component. I feel that too. You know. Yeah. And I, I don't know why we, I think it's sense of control and we, we're just so scared to lose things. And I think <laughs> for me, I see loss as space for something new and something different. Mic drop. And so it's really like whenever I lose something I'm like look at the space that's been created totally and for me that's like a really important reframe uh, in relationships or just in life in general you mentioned cheating and I want to talk about cheating because I feel like there's a lot of moral ambiguity around it Mm. and with the same guy that ended up you're like no (laughs) I see your face you're like no not at all you know why because my doctoral dissertation is on infidelity that's why laughing. I'm like, oh, oh my yeah, God. let's talk about it. <laughs> Wait, so what did you arrive at before I go into my... I was studying moral injury uh-huh. of perpetrators of infidelity. So how does it morally impact them when they cheated on someone? Okay. Yeah. So... I feel like that's fun. <laughs> it's so fun. I'm going to tell you what happened to me. Okay. And then you're going to tell me what you arrived at in their Perfect. very professional dissertation. Whereas <laughs> mine is just like, you know... It's probably the same. <laughs> Hopefully it's, it lines up, to be honest, because you want your dissertation to speak to, like, people's life experiences, not be something that's, like... People are like, I don't resonate yeah, with that. So totally. let, let's see. This is a test for both of us. Okay. So I'll be your guinea pig. Yeah. Perfect. So he conceived of 
cheating as kissing, right? Like we okay. were totally monogamous because some people don't. Yeah, I have yeah. like a lot of friends that are like, you know, he can kiss whoever he wants, but beyond that, I have to know or it's not allowed or whatnot. Yeah, yeah. So no, he totally believed that, you know, if you kiss someone else, you cheated. But there was one night I was out drunk at a club, met someone, didn't get their name number, but was in the moment. We ended up making out, didn't mean anything to me. I laughed and I felt so racked with guilt the next yeah. day mm-hmm. that, I mean, I couldn't look in the mirror. I was like crying on the phone to my friends being like, what do I do? What do I do? Do I tell him? My best friend was like, don't fucking tell him. This is your guilt and you should deal with this on your own. Ooh. And I regret I didn't take her advice. I mm. cracked. I told him in like a fit in sea of an epic amount of tears. Yeah. And I was like, I can't believe I did this. And his response was so fascinating to me and something that I still take with me. Yeah. He said, why did you tell me? Because this is your shit. And now you're making this my shit. And if this really didn't matter to you, you should never have told me. And the idea that you're crying about it makes me think that it's something bigger than what you're making it out to be. So I was oh my gosh, so fucked because it actually did not mean anything to me. It honestly kind of ruined our, ended up ruining our relationship because it just like ate into it, you know? It really colored my perception of yeah. how much you should tell your partner if you do mess up. And of course, everyone has, you know, different rules and stuff. So and many people would disagree with your ex-boyfriend. Do you know what I mean? A lot yeah. of people would want to know. And but I do you really want to know because I kind of feel like I, I would not want to know if the guy I'm seeing cheated on me. I would not want to know as long as it didn't mean anything. But by the way, sex is kind of like, that's like a whole other thing. It's like, okay, you went home with someone or someone went home with you. That's like a little more like- Involved. Totally. And like, there are more steps to take, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you had to say yes so many times and like making out drunk on a dance floor. Of course. Like you had to get into a fucking cab together. You had to like- Take off each other's clothes. Totally. Unlock a door. Yeah, yeah. Open the door for her. You know, like stuff like that. Yep. Yeah. So I don't know. I feel like that's kind of like another level. It's but really tell me everything and tell me about your dissertation. No. <laughs> tell you everything. No, but like for me, I would a thousand percent want to know. You would. Which is so funny. There is not a universe in which I would not want to know. Um, and I I have friends who decided that if they stay with the person and they've done a discretion, regardless uh-huh. of how small or big, they will tell them. Or they will just break up with them and not tell them. In terms of like, so- if that signaled to them— that the relationship was over and they were just acting out or sabotaging the relationship as a way to protect the person that they do love and Mm -hmm. care for or as a way to like preserve their memory of that relationship. They chose not to disclose, even my clients. But they ended the relationship because being in the relationship felt wrong because they weren't being honest. Okay. Do they wish, question, Mm -hmm. do they wish they never did it? Yes. They do. So that's also a difference, right? Like uh, in my dissertation in particular, I chose people who felt moral repercussions and guilt is obviously one of those signs. Mm -hmm. It's a moral emotion um, after their infidelity. And some of them don't mind that they did it because it was a message to themselves. Like they feel terrible that they did that, but it was like a path they needed to take to reconnect with themselves. Mm. Um, And others just playing out cannot get over the fact that they did that. Um, well, that's what they say a lot of the times, right? That cheating has more to do with yourself than your partner. Almost always. 
like, and all of these people that I was interviewing, most of them, it was their attempt to feel vitality, Mm. to get reconnected with themselves, or to get out of a relationship they didn't know how to get out of. Um, It's very rare that cheating just happens for no reason. Although it can. I mean, if you're intoxicated, I feel like, you're horny. Yeah, you're horny. Like, brings up that probability of doing something that you just didn't mean to do. Right. However, some of these participants, um, it was like an ongoing thing for them as well. So then, obviously, you're not just drunk one night. Like, it's an intentional, like, you know, you you cheated on your husband for two years. Or it right. was like a couple-month affair. A steamy summer. Right. A steamy summer. We steamy can all summer. use one of those. Yeah, always. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I think it really depends on the contract you had with your partner and how explicit that contract was. So what makes it really difficult is when people are not sure where the infidelity line is. Like right. a lot of people haven't chatted and been like, kissing is okay, everything else is not. Or dancing with someone on the dance floor is okay, but this is not. And so a lot of people go into relationships assuming they have these unspoken contracts, these right. unspoken rules, and then they do something and go, fuck, I don't actually know where that falls. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really sure if we're supposed to talk about it or not. Right. And so the best way to kind of avoid a lot of hurt that happens is to be really straightforward at the start of the relationship. And go, okay, like, what are your, how, what do you consider infidelity? If something were to happen, do you want me to tell you or not? I know a lot of people that don't want to know. Um, right. And I do want to know. So I make that very clear. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you're going to come and tell me and then I'm going to break up with you. But like, I need you to tell me. <laughs> wait, wait, do you tell them that you'll break up with A them if it happens? You do. Yeah. But then why would they tell you? Because they respect me as a human being and what we've put together and I I'm hoping that I choose people that have the balls to do that oh my god see you know what I would do is way more manipulative than you I'm a Scorpio so I would tell them <laughs> and I'm, then be like bye <laughs> I would tell them that if you did anything we can talk about it yeah and then I'd literally be gone I mean I say this and I'm like I would just leave I don't know if I would just leave I yeah. I've never been cheated on that I'm aware of yeah um, but I definitely, I think I have very strong feelings about it. And I think I, the trust issues would just be too hard for me after that, I think, to to get over it. And I do know couples that get over infidelity and it is possible. It's just not my calling, I don't think. Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> yeah. funny. What happened in my relationship was I told him he was kind of like, he said he was happy that I told him, but also was like, how dare you? Why would you tell me this is your guilt? this is your bed that you made, right? Because we never talked about, like, what would happen if someone yeah. cheated. It's, like, not the most romantic thing to talk about. It's like prenups. No one yeah. wants to talk about yeah, it, totally. but you need it. Yeah. Totally. No, it's really yeah. smart. It's a really smart comparison. I honestly did it because I just, like, was curious what else was out there. I know that sounds awful, but I was. And it had nothing to do with him. And then I ended up coming back to him, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm an idiot. Yeah. But, like, sometimes— it just doesn't have to do with your partner, or maybe that has to do with myself. I mean, would you therapize? Is- I'm not going to therapize you, but <laughs> I, I think curiosity is normal. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, you can talk to your partner about what to do with that curiosity. Yeah. But also it's like, are you curious because you're the type of person that's just never satisfied? Yeah, I'm so that person. Or are you curious because you feel like something is lacking and maybe a need can be met elsewhere? They're right. very different approaches right and very different intents so I think it's like it's really important to just kind of explore with yourself if you're the type of person where like grass is always greener yeah that's me then you know talking to your partner and being like I have this tendency 
and it doesn't really matter how great you are. Mm. Maybe monogamous relationships are not something that I can pull off or maybe I need those breaks or maybe I need to be really honest with you and go, I'm feeling curious. Let's both explore like, have I felt a bit neglected? Is our sex life going down? Like what, what is happening? Why am I curious? Um, That's really bold. I don't super know. Super bold. It's really impressive. I don't know if I'd be impressed or scared if someone said that to me. Like, I'm curious about— Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Both. It's not an easy conversation, but I I think we are, as a society, realizing there's different types of relationships and dynamics. And, you know, some people just say monogamy is not for me. Um, And that's a whole ball of wax there. But, like— if that's ball of something, ball of something, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I just mean there's yeah. so much to like explore. No, there. absolutely, I've been there too. Uh, but I think if you know you find yourself like at some point in every relationship being like, I'm so curious about something else. Yeah. Then you know um, maybe the relationship dynamic doesn't work, or maybe you know go like go see a therapist and like kind of explore where where that comes from yeah. and does it leak into every area of your life. Well, did you see how I caught you? Yeah. <laughs> You've been getting an hour of free yeah. therapy. <laughs> Okay, so just to wrap up cheating. Yes. So you would say, and obviously you've studied this ad nauseum here, if you're writing a dissertation on it, Mm. (laughs) you should have these conversations with your partner in the start or, you know, whenever you feel is fitting in your relationship, ideally in the start. Ideally. And if you go against what is agreed upon or what your partner conceives of as cheating, you should come clean for lack of a better word. I mean, should is hard. Like, I know the argument of like, I don't want to unload on this person and completely like wreck their life. That's what I did. And I understand that hesitation and everyone needs to see where their moral code is. Moral injury, for example, Mm -hmm. occurs when you go against your own moral code. So I can tell people here, like, this is what you should do. For me personally, if I felt like telling them I cheated on them would wreck them, I would probably just bow out of the relationship. So, so interesting. So you but that's like a very yeah. personal thing where it's like, I cannot lie to you. I The guilt, I, it, it would come in a way between us. Like we, we couldn't have a healthy relationship, but I don't want you to have insecurities or I don't want you to like be traumatized by this. So I will bear my own guilt and I'll mm-hmm. just walk away. And I think that that's like what I would maybe personally do. But that is not like a standard for everyone in morality you know, as I've learned, <laughs> everyone has their own set of values and ethics. And what's important is to live by them. So speaking of cheating, mm. there's a word that I had not read or heard of until I read your article in USA Today, which is breadcrumbing. Ooh, aren't Bre- we being creative? <laughs> You're so creative. Did you I, make no, this up? No, I did not coin. No, 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 no. Okay. Sorry. I, I just meant society is being like super creative. It's like ghosting, breadcrumbing. Yeah. Well, ghosting, like, I feel like makes sense. Yeah. But bread, no, I mean, breadcrumbing actually does too. It reminds me of who's the, what's the? The witch. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um. So breadcrumbing is essentially. Hansel and Gretel. Yeah, right. thank you. I could. I was like thinking no, while I talking. When you said <laughs> the witch, I was like, of course. And of it course. has like nothing to do with it. But we knew exactly yeah. what we meant. Yeah, I love that. Um, it's essentially a concept that w- the individual will do the bare minimum to keep someone interested, but never to the extent where they're committing or like exerting a lot of effort. 
So it's really stringing someone along or leading someone on. Like, it's just a phrase for that. We've always kind of had those two phrases for it. Um, And it can look like, you know, a super flirty message Mm -hmm. or like hints or like making plans, but never like giving specific like date and time. But being like, oh my God, we should totally like drive to Malibu together. And like, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) this is not my ideal I'm like (laughs) Um, but there were once with my mother Um, but like I feel like you know it's like giving these like idolized um, scenarios that you don't actually plan to fall through and they're really great because they can sense when people are pulling back and that's when they put in the little effort so it's like they'll slide into the DM they'll comment on that picture they'll like and this has happened forever. I think in my article, I talk about like husbands and wives, you know, like they're, the husband does nothing and the wife is so angry and then she's about to like snap and then he comes home and brings flowers and it's like, I booked this romantic getaway from us. She's like, for us. And she's like, oh my God, yay. And then like all is forgotten. And that's because he knows where her breaking point mm-hmm. is and he catches her before she like trips over it. So that's also breadcrumbing? That's also breadcrumbing in terms of like— okay. I always thought that it had to do with two, with one person straying from a monogamous relationship and kind of like leaving kernels for someone to pick up. No. Or maybe that's just the way that I Is that it. what you would do? Oh. <laughs> no, just it like keeping someone— out. No, no, right? comes out. Oh my God, I'm going to get in so much trouble. Just like leaving shreds of hope. Right? To someone that, or by the way, not even in a relationship. I've done this outside of a relationship. Yeah, it can be friendships. It can be family. Really, it can be in, I mean, it's talked about in romantic context, but it's just really making sure the person's on the hook Mm. for whatever reason. And sometimes that is in a marriage. And I know people are surprised to be like, you can breadcrumb in a marriage? Yeah, most marriages, (laughs) unfortunately, are like, I will do the bare minimum, but make sure that like I hooked you enough that you don't leave me. Right. And this happens with, like, obviously dating. Right. Yeah. Why is that so bad? Okay, so if you— No, no, no. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, my God. Let me rephrase. No, no, no. No, I love this. Let let me rephrase. So if I'm in a monogamous relationship and Mm -hmm. I'm leaving— And the person who I'm breadcrumbing, let's say it's a guy that's single or in a relationship, whatever. Yeah. But we have this, like, flirty exchange, right? And it's not objective, like, I want to fuck you right now. But it's, like, just enough to— Be on each other's radar. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know if that's breadcrumbing. I think breadcrumbing is when the other person is invested Mm. and you're like, it can be an ex where they're like, really want to get back together with you, but you're kind of just stringing them along enough until you're like, is there something better? If not, I'll come back. Mm. Or if it's like, you're not sure how you feel about the person or you just need like some validation. Uh So I think it's when you're using them rather than being like, you know, you, you might have that, flirty energy with a friend where you're like, huh, maybe one day, who knows? But it's kind of mutual and you both live your own lives. I wouldn't necessarily count that as breadcrumbing. I think he has to be one-sided. Got it. Yeah. Yeah, because I was thinking about that in terms of if I am, you know, throwing morsels of, you know, come find me, come catch me, but like this is all you're going to get, right? You're going to get like a vague time and date, which may or may not exist only in my head. emoji. Right, exactly, (laughs) right? Like an emoji or something. Like, if you're biting onto that, and if yeah. you're clinging to hope just from the morsels that I'm throwing you, like, that's also kind of on the person a bit, no? <laughs> yes. You know yeah, what I mean? I like, Because I, by the way, I've been breadcrumbed, and I've yeah. been, like, at some point, 
I'm done. Like if I text you, I was dating this one guy in London a year ago. And whenever I was here, I would text and be like, hey, I'm in London. You know, I'm here for three days. Would love to see you. He would get back to me a day later and WhatsApp has a lasting feature. So I knew. I know. know, You're like, like, I know what you were doing. I see you, motherfucker. You were (laughs) online last night at 3.45 in the morning. Don't know what you were doing, but I saw you. Yeah. You know, so it's like, I know you're clearly. not good for our mental health. It's really not. By the way, that feature should totally. I mean, you can deactivate it. Can you? I mean, I don't, but. (laughs) I don't either because I'm addicted too. (laughs) I'm like, oh, I see you were on here. You just didn't respond to my text. That's cool. That's good to know. Totally. But then when you do it for an actual reason, like, Mm -hmm. sorry, I was on the phone or a Zoom or whatever, then you're like, oh my God, I'm doing this to this person. And then I get anxiety. I'll be like, I saw your message, but I didn't respond because. (laughs) clarify. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. But, um, you know, so he would do this to me and eventually, you know, so anyway, so he's on, he's 3.45 in the morning. I saw him last scene. Then the next day at like 2 p.m., he'd write me, hey, you know, welcome to London. I'm like, motherfucker, I've been here for 24 hours. Like, where yeah. have you been? Now I have like one more day. And it was such morsels that I just was over it. Yeah. If I'm still letting him treat me this disrespectfully and it's on this much of a side piece, that's on me. Like, I don't think of him even as a bad person, you know? And by the way, then he ended up writing me, actually, like a month later. And he's like, hey, I just want to be totally transparent as to why it was an epic twat. You know, I I met someone and, you know, I felt it was difficult juggling, you know, both of you. Both women? Yeah, Yeah, totally. And I was like, that's, yeah, that's. (laughs) Hashtag empathy, like, for you and your problems. (laughs) Yeah. It's really tough. Totally. Uh, But I love I'm so sorry for I'm so sorry. It was stressful for you. No, but, and I think so. I just think we live sadly in a time when so many of us are deprived Mm. of real validation and love that we settle. Why do you think that is? Do you think we're just like a less loving generation? No, I think it was probably true for all generations. They just didn't talk about it. Do you really think our parents got more validation and love? I don't know. Probably less. Probably less. Oh my God. They were like silent generation. Exactly. Kids are to be, yeah, exactly. Like kids are not to be seen or heard really. Yeah, Um, absolutely. So I I don't think so. I I think we're just more open about how painful it is. Mm. And we probably grew up with parents that maybe didn't give us enough of that. Um, and we didn't learn to, how to give each other that because we didn't see it modeled. Um, and I think a lot of people have this weird misconception that you have to get all of it from a romantic relationship. Yeah. So people don't invest in friendships. Totally. You know, they drop their friends to go hang out with a guy, mm. even though they plan this long thing. Like, I don't know. It's been like a plan for a while, but they're like, oh my God, he's free now. Right. And I think it, we kind of devalue other relationships and we've made romantic relationships so important. I so agree. That when we get anything, we're like, oh, yes, because it's our only source of it. But also we've been taught that this is like the goal. Back to the idea of your relationships mm. being a reflection of you. And when you're in a romantic one, it's sometimes literally like free therapy. Yeah. Like holding up a mirror to yourself, you know? <laughs> Would you suggest against or... Do you think it's a kind of self-red flag when you find yourself going from relationship to relationship? Because back to this idea of you can only cultivate your true sense of self-worth by being alone. It's like, we're not Thoreau. We're not going to go to Walden. You know, we're not going to like go to Walden Pond and live in a yeah. hut for a year. That's not what we're going to do in 2022. Well, maybe. You know? Right. Know. But like, I no. personally would never want to do I that. I would never do that. No. Like a one-week vacation where I'm alone by myself, sure. But I wouldn't want to do more of that because I come alive with other people. Yeah. 
you know, and I am also an introvert. Like I'll yeah. go to a loud party and need like a day alone. But, you know, but yeah. I really think I become more myself when I'm with others. And I also find the most out about myself when I'm in a relationship. Absolutely. What was your question? I guess I'm sorry. <laughs> I, like, I know you asked me something. And no, I'm my like, question was remember. like, do you think it's like a red flag if you are someone that is always dating someone? Not necessarily in a relationship, mm. but is always dating someone because I'm definitely guilty of that. Like the moment my ex and I broke up, yeah. my best friend literally sent a guy over to my house and was like, you, I swear to God. And she was like, you two should meet the day we broke up. Cause I was like, so done and whatever. Yeah. But I was like, is this really toxic that I'm doing that? Should I, I mean, alone? yeah, I think people who avoid being alone should question why. There is no, mm. like, generalization where I'm like, you shouldn't date someone for three months after. Like, my right. clients always ask me that. But it's really about you do need to recover. You do need to process. Right. Can you do this with someone else distracting you? Especially at the start, you're so infatuated most of the time. And so it's about, are you honoring your grief? Are you honoring your process? Mm-hmm. Is this person helping you do that? Right. If they're escapism, fine. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But it, if it inhibits your process of healing and you are you are way more likely to bring the same shit into your next relationship or like settle or use them kind of like a comfort blanket or whatever. And I, I don't think that's fair either unless they know. So, you know, I think we end up using people a lot more than we think we do, even if we're like the, the most well-intentioned humans. Um, but like, did that guy know that like you broke up that day and just and oh, he did. And if he did, <gasps> great. Right, did, right, right. Was he taking advantage of you then? That's another like philosophical right. question. Totally. Um, and maybe no one was taking advantage of anyone, and yeah. that was just like a really perfect timing. But I think for me, whenever someone can't be alone, and this includes like you always have Netflix on, you always have music on, you're always mm. calling your friend. Yeah. If you don't know how to be alone. That is a red flag. Right. right? So relationships are just one of the manifestations. Okay, I want to talk about dating someone for their potential. So Mm -hmm. I'm in something right now where I've been seeing this guy and he has actually 180. And he's also at an age where men don't always 180, right? He's 42. Yeah. Which is not... 31. It's not 31. Right? Yeah. Like, can't teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And when I first met him, he was so emotionally aloof, like, really just disconnected from his feelings. And he really has become a different person. Yeah. I'd like to think that I trained him in some way. And I do think that I have because I, I've threatened to leave multiple times where I'm just like, I cannot be with someone who refuses to be vulnerable. Yeah. And I've also, by the way, called him out a lot of times of, like, I— I want to speak before we go to sleep because there was yeah. a time where we were not in the same city. And I was like, this is important for me yeah. to just call to say goodnight. Yeah. Right. doesn't have to be 20 minutes, but I do want to hear your voice before I go to bed because they care about you. Yeah. And I had this moment the other day where I was scrolling through our messages. Yeah. And I was thinking everything that he's been saying, like in the last, you know, like mm. two, three months would never have happened six months ago. And I'm really in a state right now because— I really 
subscribe to the idea of when someone shows you who they are, believe Listen, them. yeah. Right? I really do. Mm. Because there's nothing more you need to know, right? Yeah. So I'm kind of amazed that this has happened. And I know it's also very specific to the person. Of course. But does this apply to everyone? Like, are people capable of change? I obviously think— I'm shocked. Yeah. I mean, it's rare. So like, I definitely think people are capable of change or else I wouldn't be a therapist. Mm. So when people ask me, do do people change? I'm like, yeah, of course they do. The thing about men is when they come to a session, they've usually come to a really, it's rock bottom. Usually men don't come to just be like, let's, let's chat. Usually they've tried a lot of things and they feel like, okay, now it's time, at least in my experience. And their progress is usually a lot faster. This is blowing my mind somehow. Yeah, somehow. And women will come when maybe it's less severe, but they might resist it a bit more. In my personal experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I pr- primarily see women, but the couple men I've worked with, it's been pretty incredible. Again, 180. I don't know what that even means in therapy. Right. Um, but yeah, so I, I have seen that happen. And I think when you're dating someone, your hope— is always that the person will keep changing in terms of becoming more themselves. Mm-hmm. You can't expect your partner not to change, but you also can't expect your partner to change. Yeah. So you have to hold both. The reality that they will change in an unknown direction, and that might be a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's just the way it is. But when we're dating someone, we have to be like, if they did not change, am I okay with this? I wasn't okay with it. And that's where I would say is probably pretty dangerous in terms of like, if you're not okay with it, then it's like how much time and dedication and effort do I want to gift this person? Mm-hmm. Um, and for you, it worked out, but for a lot of people, magically, for a lot of people, it doesn't. And also like, is the change permanent? Are they changing for you? Mm. That's effective. And then it's not effective because if they're doing it for you, it might not last. They might resent you. Um, Mm -hmm. Any change, I think, needs to be for the person. And a lot of people change for their significant other. And then they revert back or they go, well, I can't even recognize myself anymore. And you also don't want the person to feel that way. Right. I guess my hope is that I just brought out a different side that was in him or a side yeah. that was in him that was more emotional. By the way, I wasn't asking like, I need more gifts yeah. or, you know. you know. <laughs> I mean, that's a great one. If that's your love language, <laughs> lean into it. I mean, like, yes. That's true. I, I shouldn't have acted like that because I feel that it Gifts are a huge love language for me. Really? So it's so <laughs> funny. No, no, no. I'm like not even. So I'm sorry. Am, no, 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 no. I'm not saying it because I'm offended. I'm saying it because I think people are embarrassed to admit that I would be so embarrassed but like do I want flowers sometimes yes but it's not like my primary love and I'm not talking about like expensive gifts it's like I thought about you and I saw your favorite chocolate bar when I was traveling there and I grabbed it for you or like here's a little note or yeah here's a purse fine like I'll take it but like like, Here's a note or $5,000 back. Yeah, I mean, whatever. I'm fine. But no, I just mean, it's not my top one, but it's like top two probably, which I had to come to this confidence level to be like, this is how I show love and this is how I receive love. And that's, that's just so the way it is. So anyone out there <laughs> feeling alone, <laughs> I'm here for you. <laughs> Wait, why do you think it was so hard for you to admit that? Because it's embarrassing. It sounds super shallow. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. oh, I feel really loved when you buy me shit. Or like when we 
go out and you pay for things or right. whatever. And it's again That's not a big about one, it's not about money. It's just about the intention or like the sacrifice or the thought. And I show love that way as well. So I'm like really terrible with a lot of things except gifts. So it's like if it's your birthday and you're close to me or if it's something, I'll like I'll go all out. Mine's acts of service, which isn't really any like more cool or less superficial than gifts. Like if my sink's broken, like I want him calling the plumber. <laughs> I want him crawling under there sleeves. totally. Like yeah. you get under there yeah. and you read that manual and you figure out how to make the water stop dripping. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I very much. I feel like that's a bit harder than uh, buying you a candy bar, but yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Mine's more work intensive. But you know, uh, your love language will change depending on your previous partner usually. So whatever, what I found like a huge pattern is whatever your previous partner lacked or the, you know, the love language they showed the least is usually your antennas go up. And for your next relationship, that becomes like the most important one. Um, So I've seen people do this all the time. And like your love languages change in general, sometimes within your own context. And like, as you become more confident or, you know, able in some areas, you might, you know, I don't know, maybe act service become less important or like whatever. But they do generally change as you change. And then also they reflect your previous partner. So if your previous partner never said like, I love you. And like, I'm so proud of you. And like, they didn't send sweet messages. Mm -hmm. It is possible that your next partner, when they do it, like, oh my God, this is like the best thing ever. And you'll choose someone who fulfills that need. Interesting. My problem is that Every love language is my love language. But that's for everyone. That's literally for everyone. I think there's this misconception like you have one or two and then you're like, hey, I'm good. No, no, no. That's what the quiz says. They're like, pick one or two. I'm like, no, I need physical touch. I need words of affirmation. I need it all. I really do. But everyone does. I think they they were meant to like rank it. Right. But in reality, you need it all. Yeah. And then much, much more than just those five. <laughs> I do feel like I, at least, I want it all. Like yeah. I am looking for the person that, has this, this, plus the thing my first boyfriend had and my second. And I do sometimes feel like I romanticize my past partner while I'm with my current partner Mm. when there is a reason why I broke up with my past partner. But sometimes I feel I never actually experience the person I'm with because I'm always in the past or in the future or past future (laughs) or looking at the lack. And now at this weird age, I've never thought about kids in my life, but now there are things where I'll ask myself, is this what I want from a dad? I have never even thought about my wedding. I've never thought about anything related to adult relate like you know like the way you conceive of adult exactly like Mm -hmm. none of it now I find myself being like would you know how would he be as a dad like if he says this comment Mm -hmm. then like I wouldn't want him saying this to my kids and stuff to my kids to your guys's kids no no of course of course (laughs) or you know but yeah no you're right you're right you're right romanticization I mean, it happens all the time, doesn't it? And the more you do it, the more likely you are to be single or really unhappy in every relationship. And I think there I think is— that's really crucial. You yeah. just kind of, like, brushed over that, but I think that's, like— I think there's a difference between thinking about your ex and romanticizing your ex. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people are uncomfortable about the fact that they still, like, remember their ex and have these thoughts, like, intrusive thoughts, kind oh, of. I have that. And for me, I'm really— curious about that it's like why would you not want to think about your ex ever Mm. 
Why does it bother you? Does it impact your current relationship negatively? Yeah, like, why do you think it makes us so uncomfortable? Like, I'll feel guilty or like, yeah, yeah, this yeah. is a waste of my space or my thoughts yeah. or, you know, like, get over him. Because how does society talk about breakups? Tell me. Like, what have we been taught? And it was like, they're now dead to you. They're mm-hmm. not a part of your life. You move on. You mm-hmm. let it go. Like, right. all this bullshit phrasing. But in reality, it's like, they were maybe a very important part of your life. It doesn't matter if it was long or short. They impacted you in a certain way. You were a specific version while you were with them. Mm -hmm. And thinking that now your story lives on, but they're not a part of your narrative is kind of silly to me. It's like, of course, they're always going to be a part of your narrative. And why would you not want to think about someone? I get like abusive context, Mm -hmm. but it's like, Maybe you did experience a special moment and a love and a good laugh and whatever. And we've kind of made that almost as like infidelity or mm. like it's really bad or or like it's super inappropriate. And I just don't understand why they were a part of your story. It's okay to think about it, to yeah. honor it, to enjoy it even. Um, now, romanticizing is different. That's when you're like blowing shit out of proportion. That's right. when you're like— they were the best. Like, it's mm-hmm. just not grounded in reality at all. That's when it becomes really, really toxic. And when you're living in that relationship rather than your current one. Um, and what I find fascinating is like someone will come out of a five-year relationship and then start dating and be like, oh, this person's just not the same. It's like, this person you've been on three dates on. Like, <laughs> right, like right, of course, right, you're not right. going to fulfill all your needs. Like, they, I, w- I had this like cough and they didn't even come up to my house with my favorite lollies like you know yeah. my ex would and it's like they probably didn't even know like you like right. to cough can't like you know we expect so much from the new person but they don't have the context or the intimacy totally. so it's like you gotta give them time um and so I think yeah romanticizing is just the quickest way to kill your current relationship that's really well said Taking this one step further Mm. sexually, which is my favorite topic always. Love that. What do you think about fantasizing about someone else while you're having sex with your partner? Is that cheating? I mean, do you? I don't know. Um, I think there is a difference. Again, this would be like personal. No, I have. That's why I'm asking. Yeah. Does it like, does it negatively impact that relationship? I think it's the first question. But like, for me, if it's like a celebrity or a stranger you saw randomly, <laughs> go for it. Like, I don't, who gives a shit? Like, yeah. do whatever you need to do. Have a good time. Um, if it's like your ex-boyfriend. Right. That's when I would just pause and explore. Yeah. Of like. Like role play? I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like, are you just using your current partner to live out a fantasy with your ex? Are right. you yeah, like, are you like m- missing them? Are, is sex with them, with your current partner not fulfilling? And it doesn't have to mean any of these things, but I think it's just a good time to like pause. If it's someone you know, or is it someone you want to have sex with that you haven't had sex with? Right. So it's just an explore. It, there's no judgment there. I don't think there's like right or wrong necessarily. You need to follow like what works for you. Uh, but I think it's important to be, like, very curious when we do that. hmm hmm You mentioned healing earlier. Mm. What is a concrete example of something you can do to help heal yourself? Because I feel like this is one of those words that's, like, thrown around constantly. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes, I mean, obviously it's different for everyone and what they're going through and yeah. whatnot. But what is a concrete example of doing something to heal yourself? Let's say 
let's use relationships since that's yeah. been our main theme after a relationship. I think for me, healing is integrating the experience into who I am and like continuing to live a life that aligns with me. Mm-hmm. It's not about forgetting. It's not about ignoring. It's not about feeling 100%. I think it's about being in like this state where you can still um, experience life's messiness while taking care of yourself. Mm. Like after a breakup, you need, you need a beat. Like you need to, you need to figure out they were a big part of, you know, uh, your life. They were maybe a big part of how you perceived yourself. And I think one of the best things to do is just to be really gracious and to realize just what a huge loss that is. Mm -hmm. We talk about people dying as like a huge loss. And I don't think we emphasize enough how someone leaving your life, even if they're alive, can feel quite similar. Yeah. And so just being really gracious of like, what do you expect from yourself? Do you expect your, from yourself to the next day, like just not care for it, not to impact your future relationships, to hashtag live your best life, like right. whatever it is, that's not really realistic. So yeah. healing has to be realistic. And for some people that will look like getting out of bed and showering. It's nice yeah. that that even something as small as getting out of bed and for taking sure. a shower can constitute healing. You know, because I feel like people yeah. think, oh, I've got to go to the forests of Peru and do ayahuasca or, yeah. you know, like whatever it is. And it's like, no, it could literally be, which is what I did after my breakup, taking a blanket to the park, listening to this David White poem. If you don't know David White, oh my God, you should look him up. Okay. He's a poem on heartbreak and he reads it and it's so touching and so deep. And I listen to it. It's just like a seven minute poem. I listened to it probably 45 times crying in the park and I cried until I could not cry anymore, Mm. picked up the blanket, left the park, and felt like a new human. And that was a watershed moment for me. That's beautiful. I didn't even know what the fuck I was doing. I was like, I just need to cry and listen to a poem in the park. Like, how— But healing can be 90s rom-com is that. But it's so great. I know, it it was really park. (laughs) It was. Oh, Oh my God, God. no, okay. (laughs) That's a little little much. Tone it down. I know, I had to leave that out because I was like, you know what? Everyone, including myself, will judge me if I— It's cringe, but it's great. It's the most cringe. But I think the best thing is to define what healing is for you before you go on a journey. And I think we've— kind of um, standardized and generalized, especially on Instagram, where it's like, oh healing God. is. I'm so sick of hearing about it. Yeah, you know? and it's just like, it's like unless you can give me a, yeah, it's like, unless you can give me a manual, I don't want to hear the word. I don't want to hear the word. And so healing is like a very uh, useless word at this point. So I yeah. think before you start, <laughs> go like, what do I want to feel? Who do I want to become? And what are some of the steps I can get there to take care right. of myself? Like, it can be really as simple as that. Okay, procrastination. Mm. Want to talk about this because this is something that eats me alive and spits me out almost every time. Mm. I'll be visual, su- right? <laughs> <laughs> so I'll be super motivated coming up with a project. I'll put together a proposal. Yeah. And the moment that it actually comes time to begin the thing that I have proposed, mm-hmm. <laughs> there is this moment of dread where I cannot begin the thing. And uh-huh. again, this was my idea. I brought it to the client or whatever yeah. the idea is. This even happened with this podcast. I probably shouldn't be saying this, but it really was like the moment I actually had to do the work on it. Yeah. I continually get like, oh my God, you know, I've got to start the research process, even though I'm dying to have the person on the show. Yeah. The idea of sitting with a blank screen 
is so debilitating to me mm. that the amount of times my producer had, has had to follow up with me and be like, when are we, you know, when are we starting? When are we starting? Yeah. Even though I'm dying to do this. So how do we not let procrastination become self-sabotage? Because it doesn't get easier when you get older. And I thought it would. No, it doesn't. And like as someone who does like a dissertation and at that point, it's really whenever you want to do it. I mean, you might get like a slap on the wrist from the university if you take forever, but there's so many components of my job that are completely self-driven. And um, I've been very lucky that that's not one of my biggest issues. However, I definitely procrastinate. And I, the issue is two things. One, some people work better under pressure. Exhibit A. Yeah, same. So for me, it's like, I could spend time doing this. But now that I know myself very well, if I give myself 20 minutes under insane pressure, I will probably do it better. <laughs> oh, seriously? And so then I just kind of learned that about myself. And now I schedule things sometimes last minute. So it's like scheduled procrastination. But that makes me feel better because then I'm not stressing about the fact I haven't done it because I know it's going to happen. And I, and when it's going to happen, it has to happen. <laughs> See, that's interesting. And so for me, that's just like, that works, but that doesn't work for everybody. And yeah. I think what people need to understand is oftentimes you're not avoiding the task, you're avoiding the emotion. Mm, oh my God. Amen. So tell me more about the emotion. So stress, anxiety, insecurities, mm-hmm. whatever it is that you just, you're like, I feel stupid. I don't know how to do this. Or maybe this is not going to be a good project after all. And really, we'll find out once I do it. So if I don't do it, no one will figure out this was a terrible idea. Like, there's so many reasons we procrastinate. And it's often just like a self-protective mechanism. And I think going into what do I need right now? Can I soothe while I'm doing this? Like, I talk to my clients a lot about soothing when they feel like procrastinating. So what does that look like? So like, Start a task, give it like five minutes. You can stop if you want to. And usually you don't. So this is a good hack. Like I do this all the time where I'm like, I don't fucking want to read like 200 emails, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to start. And I do. And then when I feel like I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed, I actually started doing this thing where I'll read a book. So I'll have a book next to me, like something like Harry Potter is what I did during Christmas. Mm -hmm. And when I'm feeling like really overwhelmed or like, I don't want to really keep doing this, I will go and read a page. And then I'll come back to the task and I'll do it. It's because I didn't want to pick up my phone. Right. Because that can take so much more of my time and take me down these spirals. So like a book was safer, like even a TV show. When I was writing my book, I would like write. And when I felt stuck, I would just watch two minutes of Schitt's Creek and go back and then watch two minutes of Schitt's Creek. And I got through the whole season because it takes forever to write your book. But (laughs) (laughs) um. So yeah, that like that really helped me. And I realized like it was really more about self-soothing and not about not being able to do tasks. Mm. Um, and that can happen while you're doing the task or before you go into doing the task. But you need so much self-restraint to not watch like seven minutes of Shit's Creek. You do. And you can start with, I started with like 10, for example, to like test my limits and stuff. But after a while, it was almost like, no, I want to go back and finish that thought. Mm. Um, I think it also helps when you're working on things that you're actually passionate about rather than just, you know, things that you have to do. But when it comes to procrastination, I always tell my clients, like, start, have a five-minute starter, like a timer, just start it and figure out, like, what emotion is coming up for you and how Mm -hmm. you can regulate it while you're doing it. So you can do some deep breathing while you're answering emails. 
Um, if there's like an insecurity, you can repeat some affirmations after every sentence that you write. What's like, a good affirmation? I know I, it's different for everyone. I know. I'm not a huge affirmation person. Um, I feel like it's like so crazy standing in the mirror and being like, I am playful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. smart. Yeah. I, I just feel like an actual idiot doing that. And I've tried it and I just like don't feel any better. Affirmations don't have to be like blowing smoke up your ass. And it I don't think they're ever effective when they're really out of touch with your current reality. So if you feel really gross in your body, looking in a mirror being like, I am beautiful. I'm a goddess. Like, I actually don't think that that's incredibly helpful because it just, it doesn't resonate. You want something that still resonates. So they can be really low-key things uh, as affirmations of like, I'm capable of writing a sentence. Right. Not like, I'm going to write the best book ever. Right. <laughs> but like, right. I can put together a sentence. I don't know if it's going to be a good one. But, like, you can start with affirmations that are really basic, really small, that still resonate, that speak the truth, right? Because we have cognitive distortions, mm-hmm. like thinking errors, that like constantly make us feel like our reality is worse than it is. And so limiting those and just sometimes affirmations can be basic facts. Yeah, that's kind of how I start my podcast whenever Mm. I get really nervous because I have crazy anticipatory anxiety. Mm. My affirmation to myself, speaking of doable, achievable things, I literally look at myself in the mirror or at least say in my head, words will be said. I love that. You know, I will write a sentence. Words will come out of my mouth. Will they be disjointed? Maybe. Maybe. Who knows? But words will be said. But I love that. And there are so many things that in my career the last couple of years that I did that were outside my comfort zone. And he was just like, like, give me one. Do you feel comfortable? Sure. I mean, um, when I was working with the body shop, I worked on their global campaign as their expert. And I worked with Jamila Jamil and we did press junkets. So global press junkets. And I've never done one before where you sit there and you have a bunch of journalists just like rapid fire questions. And then we did that for like 15 hours or whatever it was. And because it was COVID time, we did it via Zoom. So my meeting started like two in the morning. And I remember being like, well, (laughs) I mean, I've definitely, I know how to answer questions. I know about this topic, but I've never been in this context. And it was just about something will happen. I've never let myself down before. I believe that I will handle it to the best of my abilities. And whatever that looks like, I'll be proud of. And it was very Mm. much like, here we go. And that's kind of my attitude now of instead of overthinking is just kind of trusting that one way or another, it'll work out. And if it's a flop, I'll learn something from it. But I think it's not taking yourself too seriously. Anxiety. Mm. I always ask guests about anxiety because it's such a big thing for me. Mm-hmm. If you're in a spiral, what is the most effective way to exit and claw your way out? of the spiral. Yeah. It's fascinating. I think a lot of people are shocked to know that I used to struggle with anxiety a lot in my early 20s. And I used I'm to shocked. get like panic attacks, like very severe panic attacks where like I couldn't function and that lasted for about a year. Um, and so like, it's a very dear topic to me as well. Um, I think with anxiety, we're so focused on the solution that sometimes mm-hmm. I think we overlook why it's happening. Mm-hmm. So if you exist in a con, like um in a context mm-hmm. that's not working for you, if you're working against yourself, if you're in a job that doesn't work for you, you're going to keep getting re-triggered. So this is just like a side note where I always say, if you struggle with anxiety, it doesn't always have to be contextual or environmental. Sometimes it is just 
you know, a chemical imbalance. But I always urge people to really explore their anxiety because I think anxiety is a messenger. It's it's not trying to harm you. I think mm-hmm. changing your relationship to anxiety can be really helpful as well. It's like your anxiety is there to tell you something to keep you safe. Mm. What is your relationship like to that feeling, to that sensation? Um, for me, what really helped, especially because I was more prone to panic attacks. Yeah, what did they look like? My first panic attack happened on a plane and I had like the paramedics come because I went into full paralysis and I thought I was dying. Like I thought I was having a stroke um, and I wasn't. The idea that you could put yourself into full paralysis, that- It's powerful. Is the most paralyzing thing for me. And I've been there by the way. Yeah. But I remember, I think because my first experience was with like help, like medical help, I realized that it was a panic attack. And because I was already studying psychology, I kind of knew what it was. Um, And it took me a while. Like I did a lot of like bilateral stimulation. So a lot of tapping Mm. that really helped me a ton. And affirmations for me were like, you're not dying Mm -hmm. or like you're safe or huge because Mm. they were panic attacks. So like those are things like rewatching Friends was very comforting for me. So for me, the fastest way to get out and really depends on the person, what they're experiencing is getting back into my body. So taking Mm. a shower, bilateral stimulation, eating something, just sensory stuff was very helpful. And for a lot of my clients, it is as well. So I had a health scare a year ago. Mm. And it was the first time I came face to face with mortality. Wow. Everything ended up being fine. It was a shitty scan. But there was a two-week period where, three-week period, that I was waiting for the results of a different scan to prove that the other one was either valid or not. And in that three-week period... I started living differently. I mm. went off social media completely. I stopped needing caffeine. I have epic sleep issues. I had no sleep issues, which is pretty counterintuitive yeah. to what you'd think. Very unexpected. Totally, mm-hmm. right? Like totally counterintuitive to what you'd think would happen. Everything was so calm. I only saw or spoke to the people that I genuinely wanted to speak to. Mm-hmm. Everything switched for me. And you know, luckily it ended up not being anything. But since then, I think back on this headspace, despite it being a terrifying time, Mm -hmm. it was one of the calmest times. And I somehow wonder how to get back to that. I just love this question so much (laughs) because I think the reason why we take our lives for granted and don't live the life we want is because we think we have unlimited time. Mm. Mm -hmm. Like think about long distance, like the day before you separate, it's like, the most romantic and everyone's treating each other like honey. Like, I don't know, Uh like sweetness and tenderness and just like the best because you know your time is limited and then time has value. Mm. And we forget the fact that time always has value. The most valuable gift you can give anyone is your time. Always. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the best way to get back to that is to remind ourselves of the fact that we have limited time. And for some people, that's anxiety-inducing. But I also think that it gives the time you have meaning mm-hmm. and it places that responsibility. And your values and your priorities shift immediately. If you knew you were going to die in five years, what would you do differently? Mm. If you have answers to that question, that's what you should be doing right now. And it's mm. always like a little check of like, if you knew you would die in a year, how would you live that year differently? Do it now. And that's kind of the test I always do with my clients. So whatever you're postponing, you need to stop. Because you don't know when it's your last day, as 
grim as that looks. Yeah. And then we waste our lives living as we think we should or as other people demand. And we end up going, I haven't actually lived. Yeah. No, I hear you. I, I call it fuck it mentality. And I, I do. And I lived like this for a year when I was like yeah. 26 years old. And I did the most, I don't know what even brought it on. I think I was so, I was so obsessed with time at that point in terms of aging. I thought mm-hmm. that I was so old. Mm, cute. I, yeah, I know it's cute, right? Like <laughs> so jokes cute. on me. Yeah, oh my God, yeah. look at me now. Um, you know, but I would say things like I only wanted to live until 30. And wow. really, I know, very, very radical thoughts because I am alive and over 30. But yeah, I— That's nice. Welcome to the 30s. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Not, not that bad up here. No. And Sartre said this quote, mm. which is the French—same. The French never felt as free as when they lived in Nazi-occupied France. Mm. And it's the idea that we only know our freedom within the context of restrictions. Over limitations. Right? Yeah, so good. But— and I, that year that I was 26 was one of the most magical of yeah. my life to this day. But I have such a hard time getting back to that. So all everything you're saying yeah. really resonates with me. How would you change your life now if you knew that you died yeah. in five years? But it's also not YOLO, right? Like, it's also not like, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to live in this mo- moment and, like, fuck the future. Because right. that's also irresponsible. Yeah. See, right. but that's where I'm at now. And yeah. I'm like, I can't do that. People rely on me. And I, you know, yeah. and I, whatever it is. It's about how can you live authentically Mm -hmm. and keep becoming your authentic self. Mm -hmm. So it still has a direction. It's not directionless. It's not just um, speed without kind of a a conclusion. Like you're still working towards something and you're still working towards yourself. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's like, okay, that might be great for the moment, but will you think yourself in five years? And yes, most of us will assume that we'll live till we're 80, 90, whatever. Mm -hmm. So you go off that assumption because your responsibility changes, right? Right. So if you live like, I'm going to die in a year, you might make some more reckless, impulsive decisions because you're not trying to grow into a different version of yourself. Right. And here you are. You're trying to evolve. Um, And I would say the recklessness is not authenticity. Mm. Freedom and authenticity go hand in hand. Recklessness, not so much. May I argue that recklessness also feels very freeing sometimes because I think I overthink. I know I overthink so many of my moves, even just, do I really want to go to lunch here? Or is there someplace better? (laughs) Like the smallest, most minute, insignificant decisions that I really rack my brain thinking about. Mm. When the moment I let all of that go, which is really difficult for me, for someone who struggles with OCD and OCD is the control disease, Mm -hmm even though I don't like to think of it as a disease, but anyway. Um, So it is really difficult for me to let go of this perfectionist side. But the moment that I do, and that is what makes this year of 26 so special, is I let go of the perfectionism. I I let go of holding myself to this unachievable standard of myself. I was just like, you know what? Fuck it. I want to have fun. Mm. But that's freedom to me. Like, you're not trying to—you're not— harming yourself in any way. Like people confuse recklessness and freedom because being reckless is the only way they know how to Mm. be free. But I think freedom is something you can accomplish while being very grounded. What drives you? I think my biggest driver is living out my values, becoming myself because I'm really curious who she is. Mm. Um, And trying to create something that's meaningful. Um, and hopefully helpful to those around me. I think those those are my only drivers. 
That, my friends, was Sarah Kubrick. You can follow her on Instagram at millennial.therapist and me at Gillian Sigansky. I always want to hear what you think of this episode, the last episode, all the episodes. So DM me and I will respond. Also, please subscribe if you haven't. It means the world to me that you're here. So um, I'd love for you to continue joining me and my guests on this journey. Anyway, I'm going to go now. Okay. Until next time.